0: Come on, let's give Jesus a hand clap of praise in the house this morning. Awesome. Why don't we pray? Come on, just lift your hands to heaven. Father, as we have prayed together this morning and worshipped you, we know that your presence is in this place, God. You're moving in our prayer and in our worship and in our praise. Father, we pray that those who are in this place this morning that have challenges, that they would know your nearness. Pray for those who feel far away from you, Lord, that they would be brought near to you. Your Word says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Lord, I pray those who came in this morning conscious of a need, conscious of being overwhelmed, conscious of being anxious or defeated or broken. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your Word and move in the power of your Spirit in our lives, Lord, to bring healing and to bring restoration and to bring growth, Father. Lord, now as we come to your word, we pray, we shape our hearts and shape our minds, Lord. Fill them with your word. Fill them with your spirit, God, so that we can leave this place more whole, stronger, more redeemed than when we walked in, Father. Lord, as we open your words, speak to us. Let it not be my words that are the most important thing in this place, but what your word says and the life you're calling us to, God. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said. Amen and amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Good morning, family. How are you doing? Doing all right? Now, you were a bit quiet in the worship, just assuming because there's a bit of extra space now with our multiple services. You've got room to spread your wings, but you're not off on your own. So uh, next week, I want to hear you singing better than that. Is that all right? Yeah. If you're new or visiting and you're not here next week, it doesn't apply to you. But if you're regular and now you're thinking, well, I won't come next week, still come and then sing. Is that all right? Excellent, thank you very much. I, I just got to tell you, there's nothing I hate more than a lukewarm worship service. Jesus said it actually makes him want to vomit and spit it out of his mouth, by the way. Uh, but it makes me want to do that too sometimes. So uh, let's just be people who are full of faith. Prepare our hearts when we come to worship, yeah. Amen. And uh, make sure see, you don't know this every time, but sometimes people come in and they don't know God, and your worship helps them understand there's something bigger than them in the room. You understand? And so we need you passionate and full of faith and worshiping Jesus. Is that okay? Good. Are we still friends? Good. If we're not, that's on you. Hello, families watching online. I saw some of your comments there. Pete and Deb watching from Tipler's Passage in Queensland on your boat. That is pretty cool. And hopefully you're having good weather. We're having delightful weather here, aren't we, family? Good. If you and I haven't met before, Ben is my name. It's my joy to be the lead pastor of this church. And if you're new or visiting, welcome. You're our special guest. Love to meet you after the service. And uh, to everybody, I just need to tell you one thing. In the break between the first service and this service, I sustained a difficulty where somebody poured a cup of coffee down the front of my shirt, okay? So I've tried as best to cover it up to still look good, but um, every now and then you might catch an angle and say, can that guy not even dress himself and put on a clean shirt? in the day. And I promise you, it was clean when Uncle Ben walked in the door, all right? So uh, please give me grace today. Now you're all looking for the mark. <laughs> That's all cool. We are starting a new series today, and the series is called Whole. Whole. And we're doing about uh, responding to God and living into the call to wholeness that God has for us. And it's not just any type of wholeness, but it is a wholeness that is born out of this thing called emotionally healthy spirituality. I want you to think about that phrase, emotionally healthy spirituality. Well, of course, if I'm not emotionally and spiritually healthy, then I'm definitely not whole. And that is the call of Jesus Christ to every person. That's the testimony of Scripture, but it's also the testimony of many believers in the room. Can I get an amen in the house? That God calls us into a life of wholeness, where He wants to bring fullness to our lives. And I'm sure you're familiar with the word emotional. There is a psychological component of you, isn't it? And I'm sure you're aware of the word spiritual, which is the quest for the spiritual life and the things that transcend what is only physical in this world. But I wonder if you're used to those things being joined together with this other word, health. And that is not just being an emotional being, not even just being an emotionally healthy being, which we know is important, but being an emotionally healthy person, having emotionally healthy spirituality. Well, I think this is a big issue in today's church because I've seen so much spirituality that not only is not healthy, but is not emotionally healthy. In fact, I know people who think that they're spiritual giants, but are emotional pygmies. Yeah. And I can muster evidence for the same. You know, I, I, in our own church, I've seen leaders, preachers, that we found out on the, on the side having affairs. I've had to deal with family breaks up and marriage breakups. I've had to deal with people who come and pretend to be one thing on Sundays, but at home their whole family knows they're completely different. A tyrant, abusive, emotionally cold, outright dangerous to themselves and others. We've had to deal with parent and child relationships fracturing within our families because of the lack of emotional wholeness. And let me tell you something, friends. It's not possible to be spiritually mature and emotionally immature from a biblical perspective. To be emotionally immature is to be spiritually immature, you understand? Our world has tolerated for too long the distinction between the two, where somebody can seem to be spiritually mature, but be an emotionally horrible person or emotionally ill-equipped. And it's time that we thought about this more as the church. Of course, we see addictions and life-controlling problems. We see incredibly low Bible literacy in this present world, which I think is terrible. We see poor devotional habits, people's worldview and lives and psychology and emotions being shaped by theories and the trends and the desires of this world, instead of where God actually wants us to go. It's not healthy. We see faulty thinking and cognitive distortions. And I'm a pastor, so I'm dealing with people all the time with these issues. And you live inside your head, so you're dealing with yourself all the time, just like I am with me. Faulty thinking. You know, this week there was an email going around Alice Springs encouraging Aboriginal people, make sure you don't get vaccinated because the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And en masse, people didn't turn up to vaccination clinics. Now, I would hope that your decision on vaccination would be governed by your assessment of reasonable health advice and not the foolishness of somebody that would send a ridiculous email telling you that the injection is a mark of the beast. Don't you just think that's incredible? And what blew my mind is the response to that email all over the country from Christians, fear mongering and scaremongering, suddenly afraid that did I get the mark of the beast if I got the vaccine? People, are we that stupid? Well, we are if we have low Bible literacy. We are. Because we can't, not only can we not assess the evidence on its face value scientifically, but also when it comes to somebody scaremongering and fearmongering with us with faulty biblical messaging, we don't even have the maturity and this presence of mind to actually critique the message on the Bible's own terms. I mean, if you read what the Bible says about the mark of the beast, you would know a vaccine doesn't halfway come close to fulfilling what the book of Revelation says about the mark of the beast. Can I get an intelligent Christian amen in the house? I mean, it's just foolishness, and this is because for too long we've tolerated spirituality that is not healthy, it's not rational, it's not smart, it doesn't help people's life grow forward, it's not even rational, so when we say emotionally healthy, we're not just talking about, oh, it's all feelings and no thought, actually, if you're going to have healthy emotions, there's a lot of thinking to do about things, isn't there? And I think for too long, as believers, we've tolerated putting along without demanding from our own leaders and among our own communities and in our own families, hey, we've got to be healthy guys. I feel like God's talking to us as a church about this and I've engaged with our preaching team and we've put together a series and I'm getting to do the first one this week. But all this month and next month, you'll hear from different members of our preaching team around the topic of emotionally healthy spirituality. And my job today is to introduce it. Another piece of evidence of the fact that we need emotionally healthy spirituality in the modern church is this, that there is a divorce between salvation that God offers us and the life of discipleship that Jesus calls us to in the modern church. And for some reason, we've thought that, yes, we'll take salvation, but no, I won't follow Jesus with my lifestyle choices. Think about that. It's not healthy, friends. It's not biblical and it's not healthy. And this is my problem. If we don't be a people who are healthy and biblical, we won't be a people who are growing. I'm not talking about how many bottoms are on the seats in the church. I'm talking about how you personally grow, how you transcend the challenges that you're facing in life, how you will go through and be fruitful in the things that God's called you to and the gifts that he's given you to. We want to grow. We've got to be healthy. Healthy things grow. If it's not healthy, it becomes not only stunted, but then it just withers. And I feel like God is calling us as a church to open our ear and say, God, am am I healthy? Am I spiritually and emotionally healthy? So, it's going to beg a question well, how do we define spiritual health? What does it mean to be, emotionally, to be emotionally healthy? What does emotionally healthy spirituality mean? And if it's not possible to be spiritually mature and emotionally immature, then what's the connection between these two things? And what do we do when we're not as healthy as we should be? Well, let me give you a caveat before we start. I'm going to talk to the men in the room for a second first. Have you ever had the thing, fellas, where you look online or maybe Instagram or Facebook or something and you see a photo of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his oiled up, muscular bound amazingness? (laughs) Have you ever? I'm not saying you're going around Googling it or anything like that. I'm just saying like, have you run across it, right? I don't think every time you see one of those buff bodybuilder photos, like before you stand in the mirror next you kind of suck your gut in a little bit and you puff out your chest and you go and then you feast your eyes with what you're stuck with. Have you done that? And it's sort of like this, this idea that seeing that image and then looking at my own image, all I could be conscious of is the di- disparities between the two. Danielle thinks there's a lot of similarity, actually, but that's because she's, she's not usually wearing her glasses when she makes that observation. What about you girls? Do, do, you, do you girls see something online or maybe in a magazine or something like that and you see some, you know, when I was uh, working in high schools as an, as an adolescentologist, one of our biggest problems that I was dealing with teachers and parents and school groups on this thing um, with young women having body hatred and addictions and self-harm and all sorts of stuff because they were reading glossy magazines and they were seeing in those magazines the heavily airbrushed, aneroxic, drive, driver's side airbag installed models and then those girls were going to look at themselves in the mirror and working out, I can never look like that and so they were developing all sorts of problems including mental disorders. It's a big problem, isn't it? The idea that, well, I'm looking at the perfect image and then I look at myself and I realize I don't measure up to those things. And I think that's, that, that, that's a, a, a problem that is universal to humans because then we have to respond to my ideal versus what I'm actually like. And then when we respond to that, we can be in danger of making mistakes sometimes. The first mistake we would make is the one that leads us to the problem. That's called the comparison game where I compare myself. Well, well, how am I compared to him? How am I compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger or or, or Bill Gates or something? I mean, I could choose anybody, right? And last week, you could get the YouTube or the the podcast of it, but part of our message last week, we talked about cognitive distortions, faulty thinkings. And one of those things is an upward or a downward social comparison. An upward social comparison is when I compare myself to someone doing better than me in some area, and then guess what happens? I feel worse. I feel shame. I feel low self-esteem. I feel embarrassed. Or I compare myself. Well, usually you do this to make yourself feel better about the first thing. I compare myself to someone who's worse off than me, and then I feel better about myself. I feel like I'm doing better. I feel like I'm better looking. I've got more. At least my car's not as bomby as his. Yeah, I'm doing all right okay, an upward social comparison or a downward social comparison, both are a form of cognitive distortion, that is, that you actually shouldn't play the comparison game, because the comparison game is a distraction from a different game. See, what you should be doing is not comparing yourself to Arnold Schwarzenegger and going, do I look like him? You should say, what is healthy for me? And could I track towards physical health? See, that's a different question. And no matter how physically healthy I get, I'm probably never going to have 42-inch biceps sadly for you. Um, But if I start going, instead of comparing myself to Arnold, I'll be back, then I compare myself to what is healthy, it gives me something far more realistic to track for, doesn't it? Okay, health. Now, health is a good definition. Arnold isn't my definition, the comparison game. Health is my definition. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they're famous for the way they argue with Jesus because they compared themselves to all the sinners around them. And Jesus, don't go near those sinners and preserve this sense of righteousness and sacredness because compared to them, look how much better you are. That's a downward social comparison. And it's faulty. It's religious. it's, It's not the accurate way to ascertain, am I actually in a place of health? So that's the first mistake, the comparison game. Uh, If we don't do that one, we may do the next one, which is called the competition game, where people are now someone to compete with. People are now rivals. As long as I look better than anyone else, it's okay. As long as I've got more stuff or I appear more spiritual or or I'm more popular or something like this, there's a competition game. Now, now people, see, we're not made for competition and we're not made for comparison. We're made for community. It's a different thing, isn't it? Here's the last game that we tend to play when faced with the fact that maybe we're not as healthy as we could be, and that is the appearance management game. There's the comparison game, there's the competition game, there's the appearance management game, where we construct a facade, where we put on appearances. It doesn't matter what things are really like, as long as I look good, as long as when you see me, it seems fine, as long as I appear to be winning, as long as my house has this nice little white picket fence, and as long as my wife seems like she's submissive to me and loves me, as long as my kids seem like they do what they're told, then, you know, everything's okay. What do you think, Danielle? Oh, she's submitting to the Word of God. That's good. That's good. Um, see, that's the appearance management game. And the problem with the appearance management game is, by the way, eventually you just run out of energy to keep up appearances. Or well, not only that, the closer people get to you, the more they realise that it's only appearances and they see through it and then guess what? You, they, they feel like you're not an authentic person that they can trust with themselves as a reality. So you're always lonely and isolated if you play the appearance management game. It's innately disappointing. People see through the cracks and then you feel shame and embarrassment when they do. So, the scripture calls us into a different game. And the game is called emotionally healthy spirituality. I want to preface this by reading something to you from the book of 2 Peter. That's 2 Peter in the New Testament. And it's from the first chapter, 2 Peter, chapter 1, and it'll be verses 3. And verse 4, listen to how Peter talks about what it is to live as a Christian, what it is to embrace the gospel and live into it. This is what he says. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I mean, that's a tightly packed, dense verse, isn't it? That we could participate in the divine nature. That's what genuine biblical spirituality is, that God calls us into communion with himself and shares God's life-giving, loving, gracious nature with us. And it transforms us. And we need that in operation at the core of our being so we can grow and move on. But listen to what Peter says. He says that the divine power of God has given us everything we need. I actually don't like the NIV's translation of this, he's given us everything we need for a a godly life. In the Greek it says he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. A godly life would almost have you think it just belongs to the religious part of you, he's given us everything we need for religion. But that's not what Peter says, he said God has given us his divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. I mean, that's a celebration of what is ours in the Gospel. It's a celebration of what God imparts of Himself to us when we say yes and live in relationship and unity with God. That we then begin to live into something where we have everything we need. And, listen to this, "...through these He's given us precious promises that we might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires." desire is at the seat of the emotional part of us our motivations our desires what we love what we long for what we yearn for and of course this world because before we found Jesus we're disciples of this world this world has already recruited our desires we desire all sorts of things that aren't God even before we know about God and even after finding God we continue to desire all sorts of things don't we And what happens? Well, that causes a corruption in our life, not just a theological term, it causes a genuine disintegration of things around us. Relationships disintegrate if you only do them the way the world says you should. Your family will disintegrate. Have a look at the statistics in our society. If you just chase appearances, wealth, money and sexual prowess, your family's going to fall apart and your relationships are going to fall apart. And we know now from psychology that even your psyche falls apart. That's why we have more mental disorders on the face of the earth now than we've ever had at any other point in history. Desire, at the seat of our emotions, is an innate corruption and we want to get rid of it and that's the human condition and all through the therapeutic, counselling and psychological literature you see this thing, oh, the human condition. The Bible talks about the human condition, believe you me, and it calls us into a new future where we live joined to God, participating in God's divine nature, having everything we need for our lives so that we can move on. So why then? Why the disparity between this high-sounding lofty scripture, we have everything we need, he's given us everything we need, and our own experience. Isn't this scripture like just the, the picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger that I can never live up to? Well, everything I need, that's not how I feel. That's not what I experience. i experience I'm really broken, I've got lots of needs, I'm confused, I'm anxious, I'm distressed, I'm addicted, you, you name your list. And we have to understand that the calling of scripture recruits us and calls us into a type of spirituality that delivers to us this verse that gives us everything we need for life and everything we need to walk. Why we're doing this series as a church is because we want to help you, we want to help each other become a community where we grow and move ahead together in that experience, that lived experience and knowledge of the life that God has for us. Sounds good, doesn't it? Who can give me an amen? So why the disparity? Well, I want to explain. In Psalm 119, oh man, the biggest psalm in the Bible, have you ever read it? If you're an insomniac or you get anxiety attacks at night, just study this verse. Because it's so long, you'll run out of energy and fall asleep. And if you don't run out of energy, boy, you'll feed your soul. The first two verses of this psalm, don't worry, we're not going to do all 176 verses today. I'm just going to look at the first two. Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, listen to what it says. I think we've got it for the screens. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. Think about that. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. Let me make a couple of observations about this text and how it relates to emotionally healthy spirituality. The first one is this, is that the Hebrew word blessed, which is a very nuanced word, actually in its literal translation means to move ahead, It means to take ground. It's a military term that when a military faces another army, what they don't want to do is they don't want to give ground and be pushed back. They want to take ground. They want to move forward and get all the the baddies out of the way and conquer the city. Take ground. It's a military term. And you know because you want to do that in your life, right? You've probably used the metaphor yourself before. Man, I've just got this problem, but I really need to take that ground back. If you're saving for a house, what do you need to do to succeed financially? Well, you've got to not lose ground, but you've got to try to make some financial ground, don't you? got a problem in your marriage, what have you got to do? Well, don't keep losing ground and do nothing about it or keep it getting worse. Take some ground, move forward. That's what the Hebrew word blessed means. It means to move forward, to take ground, to advance in victory. And that's why it's translated as the word blessed, because what it really means is you're blessed, man. Things are working out. You've won. You're in a posture of celebration. Well, isn't that a great place to live in? We read the word religiously. It's like, oh, blessed. Okay, bless you, my son. It's not what it means. It means this is a condition. This is a state of being. This is a quality of life. A life, you know what, you know what, you know what this verse is inviting us into? You want to be a, live a life that takes ground? You want to live a life that moves forward? You want to live a life where you can adopt a posture of victory? Okay, you've got my attention, God. And this psalm is a celebration of the blessed life. This psalm is a celebration of the life that moves forward. It's also all the way through. You just get synonym after synonym of the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, word of God law, Torah teachings, statutes, precepts and God's Word is heavily involved in how we take it in and process and let it deal with us at our core to produce in us a life that is blessed, a life that moves forward, a life that takes ground. Blessed are the ones. you're moving forward, you're taking ground, who are those whose ways are blameless? Everybody say blameless. Again, is this just the Arnold Schwarzenegger picture? Well, I can't be blameless, why don't you give me a word I can do? I can try. What about that? That's a good word, isn't it? And those of us who are theologically astute, we know, well, blamelessness. You know, when I say yes to the gospel, the guilt of my sin goes on to the cross, and now God imputes to me me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now when God looks at me, he doesn't see sinful, rebellious, failing, broken, bent. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Who can give me an amen in the house? That's what the New Testament teacher, that was a pathetic amen for a very central gospel truth. And so then when God looks upon us, he says, I see you as though you're blameless, and because of that, we can have a relationship, and I can be in relationship with you, and fill you with my spirit. Why? Because of the blamelessness of Jesus. But that is not what Psalm 119 is talking about. It's not talking about righteousness. Blameless. Blameless in the original Hebrew means this, um, without mix. Without mix. And it is a metaphor that you use for water and other types of things in the ancient world. So... Let's say you and I go for a little bushwalk, and we get thirsty, and we're going to need to drink some, I know, you have to think about that, it's Alice Springs, do I say VB or water, but water, water's what we're going for. Okay, now we're going to get some water, do you want to drink water that is clear, or water that has like, lots of floaty bits? Someone was very confident about that one, thank you whoever that was, at least someone's talking back to me yet. Thank you Karen, didn't go unnoticed. Sister... Someone isn't yet asleep. We'll put you to sleep by the end of this sermon. Don't worry, like the rest. Um, you want to drink water that is clear, okay? You, parents out there, who's ever had the thing at the family dinner table or a restaurant where your delightful little child, I've got three older teenage daughters now, but when they were little, they'd come and they'd take a drink out of your water glass and when they gave it back to you, say, like, I don't even want that back. That belongs to you now, child. It's mine now. It's got what? Because it's got their floaty bits in it. And I don't want to drink water that's got floaty bits. What about you? Okay. Um, This is what the Hebrew word blameless means. It means to not have floaty bits. Water without mixture. And the metaphor is, you know any time in your life, if you're choosing between water, you're going for the one without the floaty bits, right? and we take that idea and we apply it to our lives and we say, what's inside you? What's going on in your life? What's going on in your heart and in your mind and in your soul? Have you, is there floaty bits? Is there floaty bits? Well, the good news is that it's not just a matter of condemnation. This is not only offering us diagnosis, it's offering us healing. Because Jesus said, hey, I can give you the pure and living water and it'll be so much in you that it'll come out of you. Pure water, very important picture. Blessed are those whose ways are without mix. Blessed are those whose lives are without floaty bits, who walk according to the law of the Lord. This is not just saying, oh, obey God's rules. Law, obey God's rules. You've got to understand the Hebrew word Torah, what does it mean? It means teaching. It means instruction. It is the spoken covenant that God has. John celebrates this very concept in John chapter 1 when he calls Jesus the Logos. In the beginning was the word, the Logos of God. He's throwing back to this word Torah, the law. The, 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 everything embodied in the promises of God is found in Jesus now. That's exciting, isn't it? Looking at me like a goldfish stares at a new bowl today who walk according to the teaching of God, who walk according to the instruction of God. How do I get the floaty bits out of my life? I've got to walk according to his instruction. Listen to this one. Blessed, move forward, you're moving forward, you're taking ground. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Everybody say all their heart. Seek him with all their heart. Who seek him wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly, you know the truth is that we might seek God with a bit of our heart, but we're also seeking all sorts of other stuff with our hearts, aren't we? And a lot of the time, other stuff has us by the heart. And there's all sorts of things we give our hearts to. But it's not just that; It's, it's that. This idea, wholeheartedly, seeking Him with all their heart. In the Hebrew, when you study the passage, what it really means, Gleason Archie is a famous Bible commentator, and he said of this passage that what it calls us into, this idea of seeking God wholeheartedly, seeking God with the whole heart, is the idea of fully giving my being over to being a God seeker and not giving bits of my being to other things, not letting other things be the thing I chase, but letting God let me, with, with all of my soul and all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my strength, seeking God. So it's not just the idea of with all my heart, it's the idea of with all my being and unifying everything that is in me and taking it in a Godward direction. And that's actually what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. Jesus was asked, Jesus, what's the most important thing? And he said, there's two things. He said, first of all, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your... I know you never work out which one comes first, can you? But it's on the screen, so now let's just read it together. Come on. The Lord said, love the Lord your God with... With all your, with all your, and with all your. This is the full unity of being. Jesus probably gets this from Psalm 119, because he's saying, man, if you want to be blessed, if you want to move ahead, if you want to take ground, what have you got to do? You've got to pursue God with a full unity of your being, with everything that's in you. It's your heart, it's your mind, it's your soul, it's your strength. Think about that word strength. It's not just about spirituality. This is about what you do with your body, with your strength, what your muscles do, what your eyeballs do, what your mouth does, what you do with your postures, what you do with your actions. And the scripture is very very clear to us that we shouldn't live our lives with all our bits of life divided up, but they should all be harmonized and brought together and brought into unity and that part of us, that unified being, seeks God. And that is why we're talking about emotionally healthy spirituality, not just about spirituality. So what is emotionally healthy spirituality? What is emotionally unhealthy spirituality? Well, before we talk about that, we need to talk about what we are and what we're like let me give it to you in simple terms that will probably reflect somewhat the way you might talk or think about yourself and others. So it's not technical language. First of all, you, 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 there's a part of you that knows and thinks and believes things, isn't there? And we would call that the head, wouldn't we? The brain, the brain or the mind. We, we know and think and we believe. There's another part of you that is about feelings and about sensation and about intuition. We're going to put that slide up. And that's your heart. You might like to think of it as your gut. So we've got our head, we've got our heart, our feeling and our reactions, and then we've got what we do, our actions and our behaviour. I'm calling that our hands, but you can really call that your hands and your feet and your whole body, because it's really about your embodied action. We've got our head, we've got our heart, we've got our hands. That's what makes us who we are as people. There's the mind, there's the, the feelings, and then there's the actions and behaviour. And one of the problems that we have as modern believers is we've separated all these parts of our lives. We've separated all these parts of our lives. And so what happens is there's something that goes on in our mind, but our heart pulls us in a different direction. You ever had that? We just know that we should do something, but we really don't want to do it. We just know that we shouldn't do something, but we really want to do it. Or we know we should do stuff, but our hands and feet are never going to get up off the recliner and do it. Yeah? So there's three areas of our life that make us what we are. And we've divorced them all up from each other. And so we think thoughts on the one hand, or we feel feelings on the other hand, or we do or don't do stuff on the other. And actually, a lot of the time, we are emotionally, spiritually unwell because we don't have a unity to these areas in our lives. We live with them split up. And the problem with living them split up is then it actually doesn't help us move forward and take ground. It actually causes us to lose ground. I've given you some examples. Let me give you another one. Have you ever heard someone or, or found yourself thinking or saying this? I know God loves me, the Bible says so, but I'm still ashamed. I know God loves me, but I just feel like I'm alone. I know God loves me and God is for me and, and, and God's on my side, but, but I'm really struggling with that I hate myself. Do you know what the problem with that this is? not said to beat you up. The problem with that is, is that we have an experiential differential. We've got a divorce between the thoughts that we think and the feelings that live inside us. Well, what about this one? I know I shouldn't have done that and I knew I shouldn't. Even a voice in my heart was telling me not to do it, but I did it. Or a voice was telling me to do it, but I, I, I didn't do it. Charles Finney used to talk to his students about sins of omission and sins of commission. What you do that you shouldn't have. Sins of omission. You should have done it, but you didn't do it. We have this split in our lives, don't we, where we don't have a fundamental unity of being, and we 're not seeking God with all our mind and all our heart and all our strength, but actually they're all off doing their own thing, and we hardly know what's going on. Emotionally healthy spirituality is when I can love God with my head and my heart and my hands, and they're all working together to take me in a Godwards direction: my head, my heart and my hands. This is what my head is. Let's just analyze it a little bit more. My, my brain, my mind. It's what goes through my mind. We've got a little graphic that we'll put up on the screen. This is the part of me that knows and thinks and believes, right? My brain, what do you think? What's going through your head, Ben? My brain. What I know, what I think, and what I believe. This is what my heart is. My heart is, is you might think of it, instead of using the word heart, you might use the word gut. I know it in my gut. You know that that sensation, that that visceral feeling, that intuition is different from a concrete thought you think. It's a sensation. It's a feeling you have. I like to call it the rudder of desire. And I call it the rudder of desire because it's the thing that really steers your life. What you really feel like, that's the thing you're most likely to do. You know this because of the existence of a thing called retail therapy. Right? And what is retail therapy? Retail therapy is where I really want something at the gut, intuitive, visceral level of me. The rudder of desire says, I really need a, that new pair of boots or something, okay? A new gadget, a new trinket, a new gizmo. And so what do I do? I go around and I automatically say, well, I'm going to get one and then I'm just drawn to it and I'm checking out all the prices and shopping online. And then what am I doing? I'm starting to shop around, get the best price, learn the features and benefits. But really, I'm not buying the sausage because of the description. I'm buying the sausage because of the smell and the sizzle. The rudder of desire is actually what drives most of our decision-making process. Psychology, it's emotion and motivations. the rudder of desire. What's going on in your heart trumps what goes on in your head many, many times. Because my heart is what I feel, what I love, what I long for, what I yearn for. And sometimes that's at odds with my head, what I know and what I think and what I believe. And then there's this third part of us, our hands. Well, with my hands, my embodiment, my hands and feet, I act and I behave. It's what I do. And this is embodied action, or this other thing called behavioral activation, postures, physicality. Behavioural activation is when we, we, we treat people suffering from depression. We say, oh, you're depressed and you want to stay home in bed and, and keep the covers over your head all day. This was me for a long time, by the way. And behavioral activation is when we say, well, what you've got to do is you've got to get up and say, what would a person who's not depressed do? Oh, well, they get up, they have routine, they have some breakfast, they go out, they see some friends, they go and do something, they get out in some sunlight, they do some physical activity, they they engage in nutrition or exercise. Oh, but I don't feel like doing that. No, 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 but if you do it, behavioral activation is that when I do it, when I do the things that a person who's not depressed would do, guess what? I don't feel as depressed anymore. There's a whole therapy about that with people because what we do or don't do with our heart and our hands dramatically affects our lives. It's embodied action. These are the three parts of us. Here's the summary slide. What goes through my mind, what I feel, what I love, what I long for or yearn for, and what I do. That's who we are. That's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us tick. And so the pathway to health, to emotional and healthy spirituality is to unify those three areas of life and to acknowledge the pitfalls that happen in each of those areas. And there are some, aren't there? All Bible words for salvation talk to us about doing this, about unifying our being and about dealing with the stuff that's wrong there. That's why the Hebrew, the English words for, the biblical words for salvation say things like wholeness, salvation, Healing, looking at the Hebrew word shalom, peace, to give wholeness to. Looking at the Greek word sozo, to bring healing. Looking at the Greek word pleroma, which means fullness, Colossians 2.10. You have been given fullness in Christ. So what are we called to? We're called to live into with this being where I bring harmony. I join together my head and my heart and my hands and I move in God's direction with it. Healthy spirituality is a biblical call to embrace and live whole, integrated, healthy lives. Here's a diagram that shows you what that really means. It's where my head and my heart and my hands are an integrated whole and they are centred in Christ and they are word-shaped, which makes them yielded to Christ. All those bits of me taken and centred and shaped around who Jesus is. So I'm not telling you, I'll just go away and do that. I'm telling you, this is the solution. But we have some challenges, don't we? We have some things that stand in our way. Why we don't do it? Why is it that I sometimes, you know, Paul even said it in Romans, things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. Why are we like that? We need transformation in these areas. Well, I'm going to talk to you about the challenges in each of these areas. Challenges of the head, challenges of the heart, challenges of the hands. And how we can see them transformed this is only introductory because for the rest of this month and next month, our team will be talking just about one crucial idea in each area that's going to help us. But the head, the heart and the hands have major pathologies. That is, they have major areas that need to be healed. We have major problems that we need fixing. Well, what are the problems of the head? The first problem of the head is, an, is error is an error in knowing and thinking and believing. It's when I know and think and believe the wrong stuff. I've, I've bought into the wrong stuff. I've got to get error. I've got to deal with, am I thinking the right thoughts? Am I knowing the right knowledge? Am I believing the right stuff? The second thing is I've got to deal with deception. Lies that I've been sold or told. That Listen, the intentionality means nothing when it comes to growth. And the worst lie than the one you've been sold or told is the one that you've sold or told yourself. We are masters of self-deception, friends, masters of self-deception. We tell ourselves all sorts of lies and those lies then require us to play ethical gymnastics. Ethical gymnastics is when I say, I know I shouldn't do that, but God understands my situation, so I'm going to do it anyway. You know what you did? You lied to yourself. You played ethical gymnastics because you justified a behaviour, not stopping to think, hang on, there's something wrong here and I need to repair it, fix it, I need healing in it. I need to process it, I need to deal with it, maybe I need to repent, maybe I need to change. And the problem with that deception and error is these are cognitive distortions, and cognitive distortions, you you go talk to your psychologist about cognitive distortions, because they drive where you go in life, and they ruin your experience ultimately, even if you never notice it's happening, because they're taking you up the garden path, cognitive distortions, error, faulty thinking, believing the wrong things, lying to yourself. The other pathologies of the head is conditioning. Faulty systems of knowing and thinking and believing, which I've rec- acquired over time. And now I've actually had them for so long that I'm unconscious and they don't, I don't even realise I do it anymore. I'm blind to my faulty systems of thinking. I'm blind to how I've been conditioned. You know how you confuse a fish? Ask it, how's the water, mate? You know why? Because a fish doesn't know It's wet. A fish has lived in its reality for so long, it doesn't realise there's a thing called water. And some of us are like that, that we've swum in deception, we've lied to ourselves, we've acquired faulty thinking, we've been conditioned for so long that we may not even be aware that there's a problem with the way we see things. And emotionally healthy spirituality says, hey, what's going on in my head? What's going on in my mind? What's going through my mind? Do I need to address some of the stuff that's in there? Here's another one, the ascendancy of brainism where thinking and knowing or thinking and believing solves everything. We just get lost in our heads. By the way, that's a perfect recipe for anxiety. In fact, that is the um, structure of anxiety, getting lost in your own head. We fill the head, but we never retrain the heart and we never activate the hands and feet. This is a problem in the modern age. Even discipleship has begun to look like this, right? Because you're not supposed to do Bible study. You're supposed to worship God and be shaped by his word every day. But how many people just do Bible study instead? There is a difference between information acquisition and information integration and what I'm supposed to do when I am faced with scripture is I'm supposed to get that information that's in there and change it into information that is integrated into who I am and then the Holy Spirit takes it and makes it revelation or in a process called illumination turns the lights on it becomes a life-changing truth that I've incorporated but many of us don't experience that and we don't even like reading our Bible because just information acquisition if we have read it before well then there's no more information to acquire is there And we've made discipleship about learning and filling our head and that's why we can have leaders who get up on stages and pretend to be Christian while in the meantime they're sleeping with everybody on the side and why are they doing that? Because they've got a head full but a heart that is not transformed. And I'm not accusing you of doing that but I'm saying that's just the worst example of it, the people who are trying to teach us God's Word not living it. Why? Head full, heart, untransformed. And God in emotionally healthy spirituality is calling us to have a head that is transformed, a heart that is transformed. So it's not just the ascendancy of brainism if I think enough stuff about God, I'll know Him. No, imagine being an expert about rubber, but the rubber never actually meets the road. Here are the pathologies of the heart what's wrong with our gut? What's wrong with our feelings? Well, probably the first thing that stands in our way from living that blessed life from moving forward is trauma. I've found this as a pastor, that people's wounds and hurts and pains and their defences and their sensitivities and all the things they're triggered by um, is an incredible barrier to them ever-changing. An incredible barrier. They Live on fight or flight or freeze mode. Living on red alert, always active, protecting themselves against threats that have happened to them in the past but may not happen in the future, but now they're gun-shy. You heard the phrase, once, once bitten, twice shy? And we can live our lives like that, can't we? Where our trauma guides our whole future. And now we respond to, to everything else like it's that thing or that series of things that happened to us in the past. Have you heard the phrase, if you've only got a hammer, every problem looks like a nail? That's a trauma problem of the heart. Everything I look at, I'm seeing a nail, and so the only, I've only got one tool to deal with it. My trauma response. I'm not saying it out of condemnation, friends, but you know that's a, that's a pathology of the heart that what I think and believe will never change my life if I don't deal with the trauma of the heart. Here's another one, idolatry, where instead of reflecting God, I replace God or remake God in my image. I want him to be like I am because I want control. Or I give my soul to things or forces, give my soul to control so I can maintain being in charge, which is what witchcraft is, and idolatry and religiosity, by the way. John Calvin famously said that human hearts are idol factories and we are expert, each one of us, at making our own idols. And it's so true. We, we give the allegiance of our heart to stuff. And if it's not to stuff, we give it to forces. And that is why in this modern day and age, ideology is causing so much conflict in our society. Because now we're producing a generation of people through pathetic institutions who aren't teaching them not to be materialistic, so they're no longer giving their soul to stuff But now they're giving their soul to forces, to isms and ologies. It's a form of idolatry. Our hearts are idol factories. And let me give you a couple of modern examples. Materialism, self-absorption, workaholism, consumerism, witchcraft, manipulation. See, what these things are, when someone's manipulating, what they're really doing is they're playing God. That's idolatry. And these things are empty and they don't reward and they don't fulfill and they don't take you into that blessed life. So what happens is as you engage more in your trauma or more in your idolatry or more in these things, then you realize this only builds the pain and makes me feel more empty. And then your only option is to become an addict. You can just drink more, drink yourself to sleep and drink yourself to death, smoke yourself, snort yourself to sleep, snort yourself to death. Why? Because you you have to medicate against that pain. These are pathologies of the heart, friends. And if you have this cycle in your life, what you know and believe about the gospel doesn't change it. You have to deal with what is wrong with the heart. The third pathology of the heart is seduction. The seduction of the heart. Seduction is the process of conditioning the things that I love, the things that I long for, the things that I yearn for. The process of conditioning me. So now I have this thing. Instead of real love, I have pseudo-love. Now, what I just described to you is the psychological mechanism through which pornography is a massive problem in our society. This is what pornography is. I'm hungry, and I I want love, and I want connection, but instead, I substitute it for something fake. It's printed. It's pixels on a screen. It's not even real. Now they're actors, and I'm getting pseudo-connection, pseudo-intimacy, pseudo-love. And you know, that's why anyone that has a pornography addiction, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And And the stuff they looked at is more and more and more and more depraved and they're embarrassed and they're ashamed about it and they're deeply frustrated. And eventually they went up in my office, I'm banging my head against the wall. How do I stop this? And the problem is not saying, how do I stop the pornography use? The problem is, how do I retrain what my heart longs for and what my heart loves and what my heart yearns for? And that's what discipleship calls us into. It's not just filling our head, it's reforming our hearts so that we think different thoughts, but we love different stuff and we long and yearn for God. And so longing and yearning for things the world's always offered us. And the problem with longing and yearning is it's trained slowly over time. It becomes automatic, it becomes unconscious. And not only is it automatic and unconscious, but it's recursive. And what that means is it feeds off itself and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Ever been in one of those, like a concert or a a church service, where feedback came through the speakers and just got worse and worse and worse? Until the speakers blew or your eardrums blew? It's recursive. It just gets worse. If you don't do something, it's not going to fix itself. And that's the problem with the seduction of the heart. It's a pathology that has to be healed. It has to be broken because it gets worse on its own. Emotionally healthy spirituality is about taking and, and fixing up what's in our head, but fixing up what's in our heart. And joining those two bits together in unity and harmony so they're the same. So that then I know that God loves me, but my reactions and the rudder of my internal desire also drives me as a person who lives, knowing that they're loved and loving God. Here's the third area, the hands, the major pathologies of the hands, of what's wrong with the way we act and behave. Here's the first one, the divorce, that we don't have holistic unity and we don't live or behave in authentic ways. I live in a different way to what I know and believe or I live in a different way to what my heart really longs and yearns for. Here's the second one, laziness and passivity. And I'm not beating you up, but I gotta tell you in the Australian culture, this is a terrible problem with men, passivity. They wait till they're already dying before they see the doctor, passive or lazy, okay? And with our own spirituality and our own emotions, we're worse than the women on this one, boys. We're passive and lazy. We could have changed it. We could have fixed it. But why didn't we? And the answer is always odd no. We don't embody our actions, we do nothing. And if we don't embody our actions, we don't experience behavioral activation. And if we don't experience behavioral activation, then we are living in the great divorce that what's happening in our head or our heart in our head is different from what we do with our hands and feet. And guess what? They've all got to work in unity if you want to change and grow. That's why worship, which is supposed to be transformational, gives us the opportunity to engage all of ourselves. Because on the screen or in my hymn book are the words and the thoughts I'm thinking. But they're coming out of my body with the sound in my mouth and the posture that I'm kneeling in prayer. I'm raising my hands in worship. This is embodied action. And some people stand and they don't do any of that. They just come as a spectator and they might as well be at Christian karaoke or K-pop bar or something like that. You understand why? Because if, if there's no embodied action, worship, not only do you not know that what's going on, it does nothing for you and it doesn't change you. When the Bible says, lift your hands to God, raise a song, shout, those are not metaphorical things. You are being called to a lifestyle where you embody your faith in embodied action, and if you do it, you change. If you don't do it, you become a spectator to everyone's transformation, but never an eyewitness in your own. Here's the next one, hypocrisy. Knowledge, belief, and thought and actions don't line up with my deeds. My deeds. Next one, maladaptation, where I've developed traits over time which I've discovered usually through trial and error or accident that they meet my needs for comfort or relief or defence and I'm blind to them, but they don't fix me and they don't help me and they probably undermine where I really want to go in life. And then there's sin, sins of omission, sins of commission, things I should do that I don't do, things I shouldn't have done that I did, that I've done. Embodied action that carries out not God's plan for my life but somebody else's and here's the last one the overuse of doing so I know I've told you embody action do do something but listen doing itself can become a form of idolatry the overuse of doing compensating for whatever's going on in my life or whatever's deficient by focusing on activity that leads to a workspace faith it leads to religiosity leads to an achievement addiction and an effort to gain value and worth through what I do the things I do performance mentality pharisaism religiosity. God will love me if I do more for him. No. Listen, you're a human being, you're not a human doing. But if you want to be a full human being, you have to be and then do. Not do, to be. You're confused? So am I, I'll move on. Thank you Mary, that's why you're my home girl. So I've got to be on the pilgrimage of discipleship that caused me to bring into unity my head and my heart and my hands. And first of all, don't chop them up and just let them all be a chaotic little bucket in separate corners of my life. But I've got to bring unity to them. I've got to bring harmony to them. I've got to do what the psalmist said. I've got to seek God. I've got to immerse myself in his word and do it with all my heart. I've got to love God, as Jesus said, with my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. It's in my heart. It's in my head. It's in my hands and feet. I'm doing it with everything I've got. See, if I do that, then I begin to change. Friends, this is not theory. You know, 20 years ago, you know my story. I was a drug addict. I was lost in trauma, hopelessly staying awake every night with anxiety attacks, severely depressed and dysfunctional. And I didn't get counselling for any of that stuff. What happened is over the last 20 years, I've learned, and, and praise God someone taught me after a few years of wrestling through trial and error when I said yes to the gospel but still hadn't moved forward, still wasn't living the blessed life, the life where I moved forward. And why? Because I didn't know this stuff and somebody took me and lovingly discipled me and helped me work out, man, you've got to get your head right, you've got to get your heart right, and you've got to get your hands and feet right, and you've got to unify them and bring them all in a Godward direction. And let me tell you something, I've been doing it for 20 years and I never once said, how do I stop my sex addiction? How do I stop my drug addiction? How do I stop drinking? How do I stop being depressed? How do I stop being anxious? I didn't have to focus on any of those problems because dealing with the pathologies of the head, heart and hands brought me into a place of wholeness where suddenly I'm not a drug addict anymore. I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I'm not anxious anymore. I'm not depressed. You understand? Many of us are focusing on the symptoms of our behaviour and the fruit of our behaviour. We need to get into our root system. And that's why we're doing this series, because I want you to move ahead. And I don't want you like me to sit in a church where I had to for the first five years trying to work it all out by trial and error. When someone finally took me on this journey, I was like, oh, why didn't someone tell me this when I was 10 years old? How do I fix the head? Let me give you the bullet points. We're going to spend a lot more time on this in the next two months. I've got to know and think and believe the right stuff. I've got to reject lies and identify harmful thoughts and beliefs, and there's a list there of all sorts of ways that you can do that. I've got to realise it's not just information acquisition, but it's integration of information. I've actually got to integrate the truths I need to know. I've got to let it change me. And The Word of God, let's look at the next slide, plays a huge role in this, pointing me to Jesus and then leading me to Jesus. This is where John 1.1 1, 1 said, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the subject of the Scriptures. It's supposed to Tell me about Jesus, but lead me to him. But listen, it's supposed to have me walk in relationship with Jesus. There's no point just thinking thoughts about Jesus. Your heart has to enthrone him as king. Paul calls us in Romans to the renewing of the mind. In Corinthians to the captivity of thoughts. New Testament prioritizes the outset of the Christian faith being a life of repentance and a life of belief. Repentance, a Greek word metanoia, it means this, to change the mind. Too often we've thought that means what? Oh, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm exercising remorse for my problems. No, it's not remorse. It's not guilt. It is a change of mind. I was going this way. I'm changing my mind now and I'm going this way. And then I recruit my heart and my hands to live out the mind change I had in my head. And that's what repentance means. In Psalm 119, we're called to the renewing of our heads. And you see these great words all the way through the psalm, to meditate, to contemplate, to think, to remember. You know what that is? Hey, let's get the right stuff in our head. Let's get the right stuff going through our head. How do I fix the heart? Have a look at this speedy list. First of all, I've got to seek healing for my trauma and my pain and my wounds. And I've got to identify and be specific about what they are. What what, what is actually wrong with me? Let me confess it. I've got to identify my conditioned responses and submit these to the cross of Jesus. I've got to repent of idolatry and seduction and yield it to Jesus Christ as my Lord. And if I do that, I will receive the reforming love and grace of God. And in loving God and being loved by God, I will refashion and transform the rudder of my desire. My life will steer in a different way and in a different direction. I'll close down the idol factory of the heart. And by allowing Jesus to have lordship, to have preeminence in my heart, in the rudder of my desire, and I give him the throne in the control center, my life changes. And look out at the next slide. That then causes me to experience the power of the Holy Spirit to take the atonement of Jesus to bring healing and peace to my life. It redefines my life around the healing love of God. And the acceptance of a gracious God who adopts me and says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're not a cosmic orphan floating around on a piece of space dust. And that helps me form new habits of response and deny old patterns and put on a new life. Have a look at this slide, Psalm 119. Look at the words in Psalm 119 for the reforming of the heart. Words like delight, words like joy, words like longing. Phrase that you'll see all the way through Psalm 119. All my heart, all their heart, when they seek him with all their hearts. It's about wholeheartedly doing this. That word delight, you know, in Hebrew in Psalm 119 says, I delight myself in your word. In the Hebrew, it means to smear yourself. You ever have a kid that's really enjoyed a chocolate ice cream so much that they smeared themselves in it? It's kind of like the kid didn't really enjoy it if they're not covered in it. You know what I'm saying? If they just ate it neatly, no, that's not a good time. Smear yourself in that sucker. Well, David pictures himself in Psalm 119 that the word of God is like, I'm like a kid with an ice cream and I'm getting it all over myself. I'm delighting in your word. And, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a term that relates to the ancient world. When an athlete or a, or a soldier was victorious in battle or sport, they would, in front of everybody, get oil poured all, poured all over them and rubbed all over them. And the one that just had the fresh oil poured all over them, they're the winner. You understand? And delighting myself in the word is like, I'm smearing, I'm pouring it all over myself. And I'm like, yeah! Gleason Archer, his commentary, he says that this word delight means to make sport of. It's playful. That's why it's delight. Oh, It's delightful. It is delightful. And I'm reforming my heart by delighting in God's will because I've sure lived a life delighting in all sorts of other stuff. What about you? Okay, here's how I fix my hands. First of all, I end the divorce of thought and action and I embody actions of things that I know and think and believe instead of just leaving those beliefs and thoughts in my head. I stop being passive. I stop being lazy. And I start, listen to this one, make a plan and have a community of accountability. I'm going to give you one short example because our time's gone. How many times have you said to yourself, I should pray more? Okay, that's a thought in the head. Actually praying more, that's embodied action. But you know that's very difficult to do that because you probably, like me, said to yourself a million times, I really should pray more. So, what you do is you have a community of accountability and you say to your friend, Hey man, um, I need to pray more. Let's meet together and pray once a week. You say to your spouse, Hey, let's start every morning praying together. Here's a thought. The church has a 5.30 p.m. prayer meeting every Wednesday. Come along to that. If you've been once, you prayed more. We have an encounter night once a month on Sunday nights. And you know why we do? Because we know none of us prays well on our own. Prayer is a team sport, baby. And so what do I do? I'm having a community of accountability. I'm turning up to the prayer meeting. I'm turning up to that appointment where we said, we get together and pray. See what I'm doing? I'm embodying my action in a community of accountability. If I don't turn up, I'm getting a call. Hey, bro, it's 10.30. We're supposed to be praying. Well, I'm going to pray more, aren't I, if I have that? I've got to repent of my hypocrisy um, and change my actions. I've got to stop some actions. I've got to start some. I've got to identify my maladaptations. And I've got to replace those things with healthy actions. And let me give you the, the laundry list of the best ways to fix your hands. Have a look at this slide. Service, ministry and mission, have a life that's doing that with a team embody your acts of worship you'll be amazed how your walk with god will grow if you're coming to church and actually sing instead of stare and lift your hands like the psalms say and kneel when you want to pray and say "Yay!" shout unto god with a voice of triumph like the psalmist said you know if you do that worship becomes something completely different to you because now you're participating you're not spectating oh pastor ben what about the contemplative life have it i'm big on that stuff but it's not for corporate worship it's for private edification Use the word of God, read it, study it, yield to it. Listen to this it's tactile, touching it. David said in Psalm 119, My eyes fail from looking everywhere in your word. Maybe we need to just get away from our devices and get back to chapter and verse. This is tactile. Suddenly, it's not digital information in my head. It's something I'm embodying. I'm reading in a posture. What about this one? How many book sniffers are out there? You know, you should because it helps you formulate the tactile nature that now I'm doing it in my body. It's sensory. I'm feeling it. I've got my highlighter pen out. I'm writing notes next to it. When I come to church, I'm not just spectating passively. I'm writing notes. Why? Because I'm embodying. I'm doing something with it. And if I do something with it, I integrate it. It becomes part of me. And the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live under the grace of God. Look at Psalm 119 in terms of how that speaks to the transformation and activation of our hands. I look he says. That you do that with your eyes. I touch, you do it with your body. I read, it's, you're actually doing it. I'm seeing, I'm obeying, I'm running, I'm walking. I put obey again, it must be important. I'm practicing. These are all words from that psalm. See what David does in the psalm? Emotionally healthy spirituality, my head, my thoughts, my heart, my yearnings, and, and my hands and feet, my actions, they're unified and they're taking me in a Godward direction. That's how I grow. That's the blessed life. That's the life that moves ahead. So, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to ask you a question. Isn't it true your life can move ahead? I know mine can. And isn't it true there's some stuff going around in our heads that we're going to be much better off if we deal with that? And there's some stuff in our hearts that if we deal with it, we'll be much better off. And there's some stuff with our actions. Life would flourish if we stopped, or life would flourish. If we started, An emotionally healthy spirituality is when I bring unity to my head and my heart and my hands and I seek God with all my strength. And if I do that, I begin to change and I begin to grow and I find healing. I've got a lot to go, but if I look back, I'll come a long way. And if I look back and see how far I've come, it encourages me keep going, how far you've got to go. Paul said, I press on. Not that I've already attained that for which Jesus Christ laid a hold of me, but I press forward that I may lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. I've got to press on. Come on, do want you bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to finish our service today. Thanks for listening so well. I know I've given you a lot today. Our team will be back over the next few weeks to help us. Each week with just one thing to work on, with emotionally, healthy, spirituality. Come on, let me pray for you, hey. Let's bow our heads all over this room for a second and let's just respond to God. Why don't you right now, even in your body, take a posture of prayer. Father, we're conscious that there's a blessed life for us that you're calling us into a life that is whole, a life that's healed, a life that's integrated, a life where our head and our heart and our hands, not only are in unity, but they're healed and they're glorifying you and our thoughts are pure and holy. Our life's without mix. Our heart is whole and healed and our hands are active. And life's blessed. Life's moving ahead. Life is in victory. So Father, I pray for my friends under the sound of my voice. I pray that even though today you've you've probably in in our thinking together you've put your hand right on some issues for us each one of us would sit there and we'd go yeah god I, I you got me on that one lord i know what i don't need to, i know i can work on that and i pray lord that no one would leave this place feeling condemned but would leave inspired to see your healing power unleashed in our head our heart and our hands and be empowered by your grace to live out of our redemption in unity and in harmony and that no floaty bits in our lives, Lord. I pray for my friends, Lord. Give them your grace. Pour out your Holy Spirit on their lives, Father. Let them move with you and closer to you and living in passion with you, Father. In Jesus' name, bless them, my